Party friends, you're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. Did you see Debbie? No, no, but I saw Lucy all right. She was wearing that blue dress and she what was... What you saw wasn't Lucy. Oh, but it, it was, I tell you. What you saw was a buck wearing Lucy's dress. I found Lucy back in the canyon. Wrapped her in my coat. Buried her with my own hands. Thought it best to keep it from you. Did they... What was she... What do you want me to do, draw you a picture? Spell it out? Don't ever ask me. Long as you live, don't ever ask me more. That was a scene from John Ford's 1956 masterpiece, The Searchers, one of several films that you'll hear about today on How the West Was Cast. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Now, in this episode, we've got something a little different planned. Rather than discuss one specific film, we're instead presenting a lecture titled John Ford, Artistry, Authorship, and the Invention of the Classic Western, delivered by our very own Andrew Patrick Nelson. The talk was held at the Denver Art Museum's Petrie Institute of Western American Art on January 4, 2017. It was part of the Institute's annual symposium, which was held in advance of a major exhibition on Western art and film. Andrew was the film advisor for that exhibition. All right. So this afternoon, I want to present you with two arguments. First, I want to claim that the classic Western did not exist but was invented. And I also want to argue, secondly, that the invention of and subsistence of the classic Western has distorted our understanding of the Westerns of John Ford. With those two very mildly provocative claims at outset, let's begin with a key term. Classic. What do we mean when we use the word classic? Well, classic is a quality that we ascribe to something. An artifact, an object, an event, a soda. Anyone remember that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that has been judged over a period of time to be especially significant, to be an outstanding example or instance of its kind. But when we use the term to describe not single things, but groups of things, a series of artifacts, a category of objects, a period of time, we're actually invoking a related but ultimately distinct concept, that of the classical. Now, this idea comes to us from appraisals of the art and culture of ancient Greece and Rome, which were judged by many to be the pinnacle of human achievement. Qualities of the classical tradition include adherence to particular principles and recognized standards of form and craftsmanship, like formal harmony, respect for tradition, mimesis, and control over the receiver's response. Now, the Western film genre, it has been argued, enjoyed just such a classical moment in the middle of the 20th century, from the late 1930s up until the mid-1960s or so. 
Now, that period also roughly coincides with what is held to be a broader golden age or classical era in Hollywood. Industrial consolidation at this point had reached a point where production practices had become standardized, resulting in both consistent quality and a recognizable and reproducible style, elements that enabled Hollywood to reach the apogee of its influence, both economically and culturally. The Western was the most popular movie genre in America at this time, and Westerns routinely ranked among the highest earning films in any given year. This period saw the release of celebrated films like Stagecoach, Red River, I Knew, Shane, The Searchers, Rio Bravo, Magnificent Seven, and countless others. And I will say now that those countless others include your favorite Western. So there's no need to confront me angrily outside after about the gunfight at OK Corral. That happened to me once. Ah, yeah. In the 1940s and 50s, Westerns consistently made up 25% of all films made in the United States, which amounted to roughly 100 Westerns a year. Even into the 1960s, moviegoers could reliably expect at least two new Westerns a month, maybe 20 annually. Now, this was a time when film production levels in Hollywood were dropping such that Westerns still made up about 15% of all films made in the United States. But with popularity comes a paradox, and it's a paradox that we're all familiar with, even today. We know that the movie that makes the most money in any given year is unlikely to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Probably won't even be nominated. Now, this reflects a long-standing division in cultural production between popular culture, which caters to the tastes of the masses, of ordinary people, and high culture, which caters to more specialized, educated, or otherwise elite audiences. At the peak of its popularity, when the Western saturated American culture to a degree that you probably need to have experienced it to fully appreciate, the genre garnered little in the way of serious critical appreciation. And John Ford, for example, won a record four Academy Awards for Best Director, a record that holds to this day, But none of them were for any of his westerns. Mm, I know. Now, it's, it's not that particular westerns weren't regarded as good or important films, because they were. But on the whole, the genre wasn't considered serious subject matter. In what is considered the genre's classic phase, again, from the late 30s up to the mid 1960s, well over 2,000 westerns were made. Of those, only eight were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, and none won. Or take the case of a particularly significant Western, John Ford's The Searchers from 1956. Today, as Mary told us this morning, the movie is widely regarded as not only the greatest Western, but one of the greatest movies of all time, opinions that I happen to agree with. And I would add that The Searchers is probably the most influential American movie of all time. Now, The Searchers was nominated for and won a single award. Does anyone know what that was? Anyone want to take a guess? Screenplay? Screenplay? Nope. Cinematography? Yeah, you would think so. No? Sound? No. Color. Costume. Color. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Special effects. No. No one said acting. Uh. 
I'm going to ram John Wayne down your throat a little bit later, so be ready for that. No, 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 you're all incorrect. The one major award that the searchers won was at the 1958 Golden Globes, where Patrick Wayne, son of John Wayne, took home the award for most promising newcomer. (laughs) (laughs) Now, over two decades later, the critic Stuart Byron called the searchers a cult movie, ignored by wider cultured audiences because of their ignorance of its director, John Ford, and suspicion of its leading man. Perhaps when enough people learn to stop worrying and love John Wayne, wrote Byron, the searchers may achieve its rightful place in the Revival House repertoire. That'll be the day. That'll be the day indeed. In the ensuing decades, the status of not only the searchers, but the entire Western genre has increased to the point where few would question its significance, whether cultural or aesthetic. And if you want to question it, I will meet you in the lobby afterwards. So I am able to make a living as a scholar largely by writing and talking not about Chaucer and Shakespeare, but John Ford, John Wayne. And thanks in part to institutions like the Denver Art Museum, which are willing to pay me and others to come and talk to you about Westerns, we're able to take part in a continued effort to explore and celebrate what is now acknowledged to be America's most important movie genre. So how did this change occur? How did what was once popular culture catering to the masses become effectively high culture, worthy of rigorous academic study? Not so rigorous in my case, but anyway. (laughs) Rigorous academic study and debate in specialized settings, like museums. Now, our first instinct here may be to credit hindsight. We seldom completely apprehend the significance of something in the moment. But with time and context, we're able to better determine matters of worth, meaning, and influence. Now, one of, if not the first writers to posit the existence of a classic Western was an influential French film critic named André Bazin. Writing in 1955, he argued that by 1940, the Western had achieved a definitive stage of perfection. And it's not hard to see where he was coming from. The years 1939 and 1940 saw the release of a remarkable series of westerns that formalized most, if not all, of the familiar character types, narratives, and other conventions that continue to shape western filmmaking to this day. In addition to boasting famous directors like Cecil B. DeMille, Fritz Long, William Wyler, and leading stars like Tyrone Power, Errol Flynn, Gary Cooper, Each of these films take place in the American West in the late 19th century, and many dramatize events from American history, like the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad and the lives of frontier legends like Jesse James and Wyatt Earp. But of all the Westerns released in 1939 and 1940, Bézin singled out one for added attention, John Ford's 1939 film Stagecoach which Bézin called the ideal example of the maturity of a style brought to classical perfection, a film that, Bézin said, displayed the ideal balance between social myth, historical reconstruction, and psychological truth. Stagecoach is like a wheel, he wrote, so perfectly made that it remains in equilibrium on its axis in any position. So here we have a critic who, with 15 years hindsight, looks back on a particular period in a movie genre's history and likens it to classical art. But Bazin didn't stop there. He also made judgments about the Westerns released in the intervening years. According to Bazin, 
After the Second World War, the Western entered a Baroque period. This led to the emergence of what he calls the Super Western. Now, this is a Western that is embarrassed to simply be a Western. And so it self-consciously incorporates additional so-called serious subject matter, like the post-war fixation on sex, as in a film like Duel in the Sun, or a focus on global politics, as in a film like High Noon. At the extreme end of the super-Western was a film like Shane, which is a Western about the Western, which distills the genre down to its core elements and burdens them with weighty symbolic significance. Now, wait a minute. I hear you say, those are classic Westerns, right? Shane is sure as hell more of a classic than any of those things I had up before. Destry Rides Again or whatever, right? I'm going to angrily confront that guy in the lobby. Now, you're right. These are classic Westerns. Or rather, they became classic Westerns. Just as Bazin invented the classic Western in the 1950s in order to mark changes between and make judgments about different periods in the genre's development, so too did later critics reinvent the classic Western. Only these critics were responding to a much more palpable change, the Western's decline as a popular genre, which began in the 1960s. After over two decades of being one of Hollywood's most reliably popular products, the Western experienced a precipitous wane. This fall was reflected not only in a dramatic reduction in the number of Westerns being made, but also in a more negative response to the genre by critics, decreased interest on the part of mainstream audiences, and the appearance of Westerns that seemed darker and maybe more cynical than those that had come before. Production of Westerns fell throughout the 1970s and 80s, and by that point, the genre had faded out, at least as a popular genre. Despite a number of small revivals in the ensuing decades, this state of affairs remains largely unchanged today. But at the same time, the Western's fall as a popular genre contributed to an explosion of scholarly interest in the Western. The sense that the Western was coming to an end, or had at least profoundly changed somehow, prompted critics to recast the entire period from the late 30s to the mid-1960s as the classic Western. And that's a classification that endures to this day. Now, the influences on the writers making these judgments were many and varied. But a key one is what is known as the auteur theory. Auteur is the French word for author. Auteur theory asserts that a film bears a creative imprint of one individual, usually the director. In many ways, cinema's status as art relies on the simple but seductive premise that films, or at least some films, are the product of an artist. Thanks to this simple thesis, in the 1960s, cinema began to be taken seriously as an object worthy of study. And if that hadn't happened, both you and I would be someplace else right now. Something, when we'd be doing something that's a lot less fun. So I'm glad that this happened. Now, this idea, this idea about cinematic authorship, emerged when specific directors were vocally championed by French and later American film critics, beginning in the late 1950s and continuing through the 60s. Now, at this moment in time, the European art cinema was in its ascendance, with figures such as Igmar Bergman or Michelangelo Antonioni fitting the definition of author as an autonomous writer-director. 
But the concept of authorship developed by these young critics was primarily applied to a group of filmmakers for whom the idea of such consistent and conscious authorial intent seemed less appropriate. They were interested in directors working in the heyday of the Hollywood studio system. Men like John Ford, Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock, or Douglas Sirk. Now, during its golden age, Hollywood studios relied heavily upon rationalized production methods in order to quickly produce a consistent product. Studios were divided into departments, each specializing in one aspect of the production process. So rather than needing to assemble an entire team to make a single film, that film would simply move from department to department. In each case, after personnel had completed their assigned task on one film, they would simply move on to the next one. Only a few people, often only the producers, and seldom the director, would be involved with the film from beginning to end. Directors, for example, seldom had any say in how their films would be edited. So on the set, a director could supervise hundreds or thousands of takes, directing the actors to perform in a different way, trying out different camera angles. But the director would have no idea which of those cakes would be used. A lot of power not in the hands of the director. But despite those kind of constraints on artistic autonomy, auteur critics argued that certain Hollywood directors were able to leave their signatures on films. And they did so in the form of characteristic themes and motifs or striking visual compositions, things that would be difficult to tamper with after filming was completed. Now, there are some obvious drawbacks to thinking about film directors as authors or artists. The, uh, and many critics argue that authorship is an inadequate explanation of how movies work. The autorist approach tends to minimize the fact that cinema is a commercial and highly collaborative form. It takes a lot of people to make a movie. A lot of people sitting around, apparently. But it's not as personal as penning a poem or painting a painting. There's no question about that. And because so many individuals usually contribute to the production of a film, we may reasonably have reservations about assigning credit to a single authorial vision, especially in studio-produced work, where a crew could number in the hundreds or even thousands. And yet, in spite of those reasonable objections and reservations, authorship remains one of the principal ways in which cinema is examined. And this is especially true of the Western. Now, we often think about the Western in relation to particular filmmakers. Indeed, much of the canon of great Westerns, the films that you're likely to think of as classics of the genre, is the product of a select group of directors. This pantheon includes men like Howard Hawks, director of witty ensemble pictures like Red River, Rio Bravo, and El Dorado. Anthony Mann, with his celebrated psychological frontier dramas like The Furies, Winchester 73, and The Naked Spur. Bud Bedecker, the former bullfighter who made tough, lean action pictures like Seven Men from Now and The Tall Tee. And the man we'll learn more about in a few minutes, Sergio Leone, the Italian filmmaker who used his encyclopedic knowledge of Hollywood westerns to turn the genre on its head, contorting conventional scenarios and iconography into perverse, overblown spectacles of gunplay and death. <laughs> Is that about right, Austin? Okay, perfect. That's your talk? Okay, well, we'll just, we'll just go to the bar afterwards. All right. It's over, folks. But the first among this cadre or pantheon of great Western filmmakers is unquestionably John Ford. 
old master of Hollywood cinema, and the man behind such outstanding westerns as Stagecoach, my darling Clementine, The Searchers, and the man who shot Liberty Valance. So who was John Ford? Damned if I know. I mean that seriously. I, I, I don't really know who he is. I know that talks of this nature are usually designed to offer you, the audience, insights into the artist's work, usually by making connections between their biography and their creative output. In Ford's case, I find such explorations to be engaging, entertaining, and interesting, but ultimately underwhelming, unequal to the task of accounting for the nuances, complexity, and artistry of either the man or his films. So Ford was born... Sean Aloysius Ofini in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, on February 1st, 1894. He was the 13th child of Irish immigrants. Now, this Irish background and upbringing is frequently invoked by nearly every Ford biographer to explain Ford's elusive and often abrasive personality and his perpetual stance as a self-styled outsider. Okay, maybe. I, I don't know. Ford followed his older brother Francis to Hollywood in 1913 and was directing features by 1970. He didn't stop until 1966 with the release of his 125th and final film, Seven Women. Now this remarkable body of work, and the Westerns in particular, is frequently interpreted as a reflection of the American zeitgeist, the spirit of America, and of the profound changes that the nation underwent over the course of the 20th century. Like Many of his contemporaries, Ford, was still alive in the late 1960s and 1970s. And he had a great deal to say about his work. Sometimes. Monument Valley. John Ford has shot nine movies here. It's become so identified with him, other directors are convinced that using it as a location would be plagiarism. Surely this would be the place most conducive to getting Mr. Ford's own thoughts on his craft and art. Eleven, take one. Take one? More than one take, will I? Shoot. Mr. Ford, you made a picture called Three Bad Men, which was a large-scale western. You had a quite elaborate land rush in it. Mm-hmm. How did you shoot that? With a camera. Isn't the Sunshine's Bride kind of a little picture that you made for yourself? Would that yeah. fall in the same? Uh-huh. Mr. Ford, I've noticed that the uh, that your view of the West has become increasingly sad and melancholy over the years. Uh, I'm comparing, for instance, Wagon Master to the man who shot Liberty Balance. Have you been aware of that change no. in mood? No. Now that I've pointed out, is there anything you'd like to say about it? I don't know what you're talking about. Can I ask you what what particular element about the Western appealed to you from the beginning? I wouldn't know. Would you agree that the point of uh, Fort Apache was that uh, tradition, the tradition of the army was more important than one individual? All right, so that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, 
one of the longer interviews the woman says yes uh, so that is a clip from Peter Bogdanovich's documentary directed by John Ford it's not only the most famous part of that movie but this is also the most famous footage we have of John Ford now the montage has of course been edited by Bogdanovich for effect and Ford was believe it or not often more talkative and reflective in interviews than he's here portrayed but those two minutes have done more to establish Ford's personality in the popular consciousness and culture than thousands of pages of biography, which is something I know John Ford would be very happy about. <laughs> now, I actually believe that this clip does offer us some insight into who John Ford was. He was an actor at heart. As the actress Olive Carey said, Jack was one of the greatest hams of all time. He was a born actor, a complex fantastic actor. He was never relaxed, never mellow, never allowed you to relax either. That's why he was such a good director, I guess. He was always playing a part for his own amusement. So I don't know who John Ford was. But I can say that no other major filmmaker so closely identified himself with the Western. And in the public mind, the association between Ford and the Western is so close that one can seem to merge into the other. In his seminal 1969 study of the Western, Horizons West, Jim Kitzes wrote, What gives the Western a particular thrust and centrality is its historical setting. It's being placed at exactly that moment when options are still open. The dream of a primitivistic individualism, the ambivalence of at once beneficent and threatening horizons, still tenable. For the filmmaker who is preoccupied with these motifs, the Western has offered a remarkably expressive canvas. Nowhere, of course, is the freedom that it bestows for personal expression more evident than in the cinema of John Ford. More than any other filmmaker, and perhaps more than any other artist, Ford crafted a powerful vision of the frontier that took hold in the popular imagination in the 20th century and continues to shape our thinking about the American West. But with that said, we should exercise caution when discussing the relationship between Ford and his favorite genre. When Ford would introduce himself, he would say, I'm John Ford, and I make Westerns. He never said, I am the Western." Now, unlike Kitz's, who envisions a reciprocal relationship between filmmaker and genre, in which the Western becomes a vehicle for personal expression, many critics outright equate Ford with the Western. The film scholar Thomas Schatz, for example, has argued that the evolution of Ford's treatment of the genre is indicative of its overall historical development. Now, you can see where such a perspective would come from. Two of Ford's major westerns, Stagecoach in 1939 and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance in 1962, effectively bookend the classic western. So you could argue that the classic western begins and ends with Ford. Schatz also claims that after Stagecoach, Ford's attitude towards the classic western formula became increasingly self-conscious, both stylistically and thematically. So this is essentially Bazin's argument, but stretched over a longer period. We go from the celebratory idealism of a film like Stagecoach to the acknowledgement in Liberty Valance that the myth of the West is built on falsehood. What unites these films as classic, however, in the minds of many critics is the belief in the goodness of society and in the ability of the self-sacrificing hero to help establish civilization in the wilderness, to at least give the garden a start in the desert. 
Ford's body of work thus exemplifies trends in the development of the Western over the course of its classic phase. Or so the argument goes. But does it really? Or could our ideas about the classic Western be blinding us to some of Ford's artistry, some of his innovation, and some of his idiosyncrasies? Let's go back to 1939-1940. Look at these films. If we consider the many celebrated Westerns released in these two years, which one is least like the others? I would say Stagecoach. Though the film is set in the Old West, it concerns neither a famous historical figure nor a famous historical event. Wayne, who plays the Ringo Kid, was not a big star in 1939 like Tyrone Power or Errol Flynn. At the time, he was best known for starring in B-Westerns at Republic Studios. And unlike the story of the lawman who cleans up a town, or of the gentleman bandit, or of the construction of the railroad, or of the battle between large ranchers and small homesteaders, the story of the imperiled stagecoach? Not one we find very often in the Western. And what do you make of the movie poster's oddly generic tagline? A powerful story of nine strange people. (laughs) I think there's an in-laws joke here somewhere. It says nothing about the West at all. Well, though perplexing as it may be to us today, that tagline is meaningful to audiences in the 1930s when scenarios about assortments of individuals, strangers, united by dint of their confinement in a particular space, were commonplace. Stagecoach is in one sense but the latest attempt to replicate the phenomenal success of a 1932 film called Grand Hotel. Only instead of the hotel, we have a stagecoach. That's what this meant to audiences in the 1930s. As for the film's purported idealism, well, the sense of community that is achieved within the stagecoach is in fact quite fleeting, as the conveyance travels from one unattractive location to another. The town of Tonto is filled with sanctimonious busybodies, while Lordsburg is apparently nothing but saloons and whorehouses. This is not an ideal representation of the West. The film's happy ending sees the couple, Ringo and Dallas, leave not just town, but the country. (laughs) Save from the blessings of civilization, as Doc Boone puts it. Hmm. Ford's westerns from at least Stagecoach, if not before, do evidence of faith in the transformative power of community. There's no question about that. But we also find a deep skepticism of civilization and its institutions, especially in their tendencies towards corruption and in their capacity to eject what society deems to be misfits and outcasts. Consider, if you will, the famous ending to The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Now, this film, this is a spoiler alert here. Everyone seen the movie? You good? Okay, great. Be in the lobby afterwards for the yeah, thing. Okay. So this film is framed as the recollection of Senator Ransom Stoddard, played by James Stewart. Stoddard reveals to a reporter and his editor that a famous event from his past, the event upon which he has built his entire career, the shooting of the outlaw Liberty Valance in the town of Shinbone 25 years prior, is a lie. Valance was in fact shot by Stoddard's friend, Tom Donovan, played by John Wayne. Donovan realized that Stoddard 
the lawyer, and not he, the rancher, represented the future, the future of the town, the future of the state, the future of the nation. So the rancher made the lawyer take credit for this heroic action. Well, you know the rest of it. I went to Washington. We won statehood. I became the first governor. Three terms as governor. Two terms in the Senate. Ambassador to the court of St. James. Back again to the Senate. And a man who, with a snap of his fingers, could be the next vice president of the United States. Well, you're not going to use the story, Mr. Scott? No, sir. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. He's right, Rams. Now, this is the key scene that critics have in mind when they claim that Ford's westerns, and the classic western in general, became increasingly self-reflective and sad, reaching a point where neither filmmakers nor their audiences accepted the myths that they might have 20 years before. Now, the finale of Liberty Valance is certainly self-conscious in that a character explicitly states that the West, as most people understand it, is more myth than truth. But this idea has been present in Ford's westerns from the beginning. Consider Ford Apache from 1948. Now, the film offers viewers a loose adaptation of Custer at Little Bighorn, with Henry Fonda playing an arrogant lieutenant colonel from the east with a hatred of Indians who leads his men on a suicidal charge against Cochise and his forces. But in death, he becomes a hero, immortalized in western art. gentlemen, I warn you, this may be a long campaign. Maybe weeks before you have any headlines for your newspapers. If we catch Geronimo, that'll be headline enough, Colonel York. And more glory for your regiment. He must have been a great man. And a great soldier. No man died more gallantly. Or one more honor for his regiment. Of course, you're familiar with the famous painting of Thursday's Charge, sir. Yes, I saw it when last in Washington. That was a magnificent work. There were these massed columns of Apaches in their war paint and feather bonnets. And here was Thursday leading his men in that heroic charge. Correct in every detail. He's become almost a legend already. He's the hero of every schoolboy in America. But what of the men who died with him? Uh, what of Collingworth and... Collingwood. Oh, of course, Collingwood. That's the ironic part of it. We always remember the Thursdays, but the others are forgotten. You're wrong there. They aren't forgotten because they haven't died. They're living. Right out there. Collingwood and the rest. And they'll keep on living as long as the regiment lives. Their pay is $13 a month. Their diet, beans and hay. Maybe horse meat before this campaign is over. Fight over cards or rut gut whiskey, but share the last drop in their canteens. Faces may change, their names, but 
they're there. They're the regiment. The regular army. Now and 50 years from now. They're better men than they used to be. Thursday did that. He made it a command to be proud of. The command is formed, sir. Thank you, Sergeant Major. And now it's time to move. Questions, gentlemen? Thank you very much, Drew. So, in this scene, John Wayne's character, York, knows the truth about Thursday, but allows the legend to persist. And to me, this scene is much more powerful because of what is not said. I, I like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance a great deal, and I tend to agree with the opinion that it was Ford's last great film. But so often in Liberty Valance, characters are called upon to say things that Ford found other ways to communicate in earlier, better films. Medicine country, huh? Bad medicine, I think. Buenas tardes, mi jefe. Caballeros, this is the great cicatrice. Watch his car, huh? Plain to see how you got your name. You big shoulders. Young one, he who follows. You speak pretty good American. For a Comanche. Someone teach you? Uh, teach you. Then he, uh, Bella Cana about P.A. Bokim Temoe? Temoe is right. We come to trade. Only not out here. I don't stand talking in the wind. Graviel, caballo acá. Dan un par de paseos para el jefe. Speak good command. Someone teach you? You stay out of here. Not likely. <laughs> so, in this scene from The Searchers, our heroes, Ethan and Marty, finally encounter the man they have spent the past five, maybe seven, depending on who you ask, years searching for. The Comanche chief Scar, who massacred Ethan and his brother's family and kidnapped his niece. Through editing, dialogue, costume, the decision to make sure that Scar has blue eyes, and yes, color contacts were possible in 1956, are significant. Through those specific decisions, Ford doesn't oppose his hero and villain. He mirrors them, completely subverting the moral order that supposedly governs the classic Western. It is, in the searchers, the hero's superior savagery that enables him to triumph in the end. 
This is a film where the hero, played by John Wayne, the genre's greatest actor, scalps his Indian adversary. But he still manages to save the girl. Now, it would take an entire presentation to cover just how complex, nuanced, troubled, troubling, and ultimately great The Searchers is. But what I can say is that so much of that greatness comes not from how it exemplifies the traits we associate with the classic Western, but how Ford defies them. Now, today, of course, we're very accustomed to films about heroes who, in their quest for vengeance, begin to evidence the characteristics of the villain. Yes? But unlike in, say, every recent superhero film, at no point does another character in The Searchers have to say, gee, Ethan, you're becoming a lot like your enemy. That moment doesn't happen because it doesn't need to. One of Ford's gifts was unquestionably his mastery of silence, of communicating things through means other than explicit dialogue. may be my favorite moment in the movie. The camera doesn't move. Nobody says anything. But through other ways, it tells you everything you need to know. And I'll, I'll let John Wayne explain this technique better than I can. Well, actually, he has the capacity for making those silent scenes. And one of the things that you must learn when working for him is to relax and look. On some occasions, you've naturally been given enough of the story before and after that you know about how the person is thinking, but it really doesn't matter. He plays a little soft music on the set. He has music off the side. They don't use that track. And uh, you just look, and the audience will put the thoughts that they want to put in uh, to that scene, and they'll give it the heart that it, the scene needs. I think that may be the most haunting image in the history of cinema. I'm not sure, but it'd have to be close. The film scholar and Ford expert Edward Buscombe, I think, put it really well when he wrote about Ford that the director had a gift for combining the epic and the intimate in a single moment. Now, Ford, as many of us will know, began making movies during the silent era, which partly explains his understanding of the power of the visual aspects of the medium. But with respect to the Westerns, at least, we can also credit his deep knowledge of Western art. Many moments in Ford's Westerns look like paintings by Russell or Schreivogel or Remington come to life. Let me just give you a couple of examples. It's easy to pick these out. So there's the Cowboy from 1902, My Darling Clementine from 1946. Here's a Remington painting against the sun. And here's some PowerPoint wizardry for you. Uh, yeah. But, you know, as Mary pointed out, it's, 
it's not so much about saying, well, he saw that painting and tried to replicate it. There, there's more to that. Now, Ford openly acknowledged the influence of these great Western artists, saying, for example, of his 1948 Technicolor Western, she wore a yellow ribbon, I tried to copy the Remington style there. You can't copy him 100%, but at least I tried to get his color and movement, and I think I succeeded partly. Now, the pictorial West of Frederick Remington was, of course, just as much an invention as the classic Western, as G. Edgar Wright, Christine Bold, and many others have documented. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Easterners, like Remington, as well as Wister, Roosevelt, who were anxious about the softening influence of modern urban life, sought out a kind of macho rejuvenation in the wilderness of the American West. But as has been pointed out, the West that these men encountered was no longer wild, though. The 1890 census showed that the frontier line, which is defined as the point beyond which population density is less than two people per square mile, well, it showed it had ceased to exist, and so the frontier was officially declared closed. But the fact that the West was no longer the West did not stop Remington, Worcester, and Roosevelt from dressing up in Western costume and partaking in Western activities, like hunting, riding, and ranching. Those men then sought to preserve and popularize this mythical West and its associated virtues like rugged individualism through art, literature, and political action. From that point on, whether in film, television, or at dude ranches and national parks, the American West has been an imaginary space where generations of Americans, urban and later suburban, have been able to go and dress up and play cowboy. Now, Ford was clearly influenced by this tradition both its representational conventions and its underlying ideals, like the military comprised of ordinary men, or the glory attained by dignified defeat, to name but two things that Remington and Ford have in common. But Ford's Westerns tell us that the director understood that this West, this mythical West of color and movement, was not history but it nevertheless served a larger purpose. So in his Westerns, Ford offers us not the legend, but the truth. Thank you. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you.